Just to review from last week, if you recall, we're doing a study on the marks of a healthy church. Last week, we looked at four of them, and we determined that the goal of this is to bring glory to God in the church, according to Ephesians 3.21. That's the goal of church, and if we're to do that, what are the marks that are going to uh, set apart a church that is actually doing that? How are we going to know if a church is glorifying God or not? And we really gave two reasons why uh, to, to look at this. Number one was to show that scripture is sufficient to address these kind of things. It doesn't leave us to our own to figure out how to worship God. And then secondly, is that you will know how to evaluate a church on a biblical basis, right? There's 104 churches in this area, in Bozeman. How are you gonna decide where to go on a Sunday? And beyond that, when you leave this place called Bozeman, if you do, how are you gonna evaluate a church wherever you end up? And so the goal is to equip you, to give you the biblical uh, grounds for what constitutes a church. And last week we looked at the first four. And just to review those, the first was expositional preaching, which at its basic root is preaching that exposes the meaning of the text. It lays bare the meaning of the text. The second was biblical church leadership. And we saw that Churches are to be led uh, in a spiritual sense by the elders and then supported by the deacons. Thirdly, we saw a biblical understanding of church membership, and we looked at several practical and biblical evidences for this. And then fourthly, we saw a biblical view of church restoration or discipline. Coming out of Matthew 18, we saw the, the intent or the purpose of that is to restore a sinning brother or sister back to the Lord. And so that's what we covered last week. And as I look at these four from last week, uh, they're, they're really in the church's court. And what I mean is, is that it, it's really from the church's perspective. And sure, we need to believe those things and agree with them. But tonight is really exciting. And here's why. Tonight, we're going to put our own doctrine to the test. We're going to examine our own doctrine. And yes, these need to be true of a church. But friends, these need to be true of our own beliefs. These need to be true about what you and I believe as well. And so we're going to take this thing head on with the first mark this evening, and we're going to jump right in and look at the fifth mark of a biblical church or a healthy church is this. It's a biblical view of the sovereignty of God. I hope you know by now that God is the ultimate authority. He is the creator. He is the sustainer. He is in complete control of every aspect of the universe. Things such as nations at war, down to every hair on your head, God knows and is in control of. Matthew tells us he causes the rain to fall on the just and on the unjust. The psalmist says, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. He controls the weather patterns. He controls the spread of disease. He controls life, the life of a baby, and he controls death. I want you to, to take your hand and hold your right hand like this and your left hand open. I want you to lean over and spit in your neighbor's hand and then rub it in. No, just kidding. Don't do that. But I do want you to hold your hand like this. Hold your right hand like this and your left hand open. And I want you to listen to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12, as you're holding your hand like this. It says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span of his hand? 
Now, this is an anthropomorphic uh, usage, a literary device by this author to attribute to God uh, something that's not actually true in that God doesn't have a body, but it's a way to describe the power and the almightiness of God. And if God was limited to one place, the point of this, he's not because he's omnipresent, but the point is to show the power of God and the almightiness that the oceans of the earth exist within his hand. And in your left hand, the entire cosmos, the entire, every galaxy, every planet, every star would just fit right in God's hand. Do you see the mind-blowing nature of this verse? This is the power of God. This is the, the sovereignty of God, the in-control nature of God. God is in control. This is the testimony of Scripture, right? Not just of the good, but even of the bad. And that can be a difficult thing to accept. I recognize that. It's not easy, but it's true. Listen for, to Isaiah 45, 7. It says that he is the one who is forming the light and creating the darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. And so this mark, although difficult, to accept is a sure test to see if a church is going to approach scripture and theology from what we want to believe or from what the Bible says is true. Do they believe this? And even asking you, do you believe this? Is this your God that you believe in? Well, in addition to overall sovereignty, another specific application of God's sovereignty is in salvation. Turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. In the New Testament, right half of your Bible, past the four Gospels and Acts, you'll find a little letter called Ephesians. And look at chapter 1. I'll start reading in verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Verse eight, which he lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. Now there's a lot packed into this passage, but I just want to highlight a few things. You notice the word predestined occurred twice. And this word predestined literally means to pre-establish boundaries. God laid out the boundaries of the elect before the world was. He set them apart. Look at verse 4. It says, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Look at verse 5. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Christ. Look at verse 11. Also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will. Friends, this is absolutely unavoidable. 
God is sovereign over even those who are being saved. But let's go a step farther. If you're a believer here tonight, and if you've been born from above, if you've been given new life within, then God is not only in control over your salvation, but he is in control of your entire life. From Ephesians, flip to the left to Romans chapter 8. And and what we're going to see is that God, this sovereign God, is working all things for the good of believers. Romans chapter 8, verse 28, Paul writing says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, this first acknowledgement of his sovereignty is that he causes all things to work together for good for those who love God or for believers. And this verse claims that God is in control of the believer's life and even the circumstances surrounding it. Yet not only this, but it really implies this. Doesn't it imply that God is in control of everyone's life then? Right? Do believers not encounter unbelievers? If God's in control of the believer's life and the believer is getting a job or not getting a job, getting an A on a test, not getting a flunking in class, he's interacting all the time or she's interacting with unbelievers, then God's in control of the unbelievers as well. Right? Implied from this verse is that God is in control of everything. He's in control of everything. And he says, it says in verse 28 that he is not only in control, but he is working these things together for good, for the good of the believer. What is the ultimate good of the believer, by the way? Just as a side note. Well, the ultimate good of the believer is Christ-likeness, right? It's becoming conformed to the image of Christ. God works all things in your life, if you're a believer here tonight, to conform you to the image of Christ. What appears to be bad at times in our lives is not because God is using it to further our godliness, to further our Christ-likeness. Sometimes this involves pain and suffering. Sometimes it means not getting the job or position you really wanted. But in the end, we will see clearly that things turned out for the best possible outcome. Is that not an encouragement to your souls? if you're a believer here tonight. Guys, God knows the beginning and the end. He sees the whole perfectly clear. Don't miss the other aspect of this verse, though. Not only is God sovereign, but what else does this verse say? It says that God is good. God is good. He is a good God working all things for good to those who love him. And and so I want to present this to you. If God is in control on one hand, and if he is good then you have no good reason not to trust him. You have no good reason. He is perfectly in control and he is good. Therefore, we have every reason to trust him, to trust him with our life, to trust him with every aspect that is happening. Continue in verse 29, though. It says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And this is really what I've been saying, but here it states it again. The phrase, those whom God foreknew, refers to the predetermined choice uh, to set his love upon them and establish this intimate relationship with them. To foreknow is to know beforehand, and as we know, the word know in Scripture is uh, used as an intimate term of affection or closeness. And so from this verse, we see that before the foundation of the world, God chose to know some in a personal and intimate way. 
Reading on, it says, those whom he foreknew, he predestined. And remember, predestined means to pre-establish boundaries. It can also mean uh, to appoint beforehand. So within this context, we see that God has predetermined or appointed those whom he foreknew to be conformed to the image of his son. He has set it up already for the believer's life to be conformed to the image of Christ. And to share in his love forever. And then verse 30 continues. And these whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. And this just really outlines the process of salvation following predestination. He predestined, then he called. And those whom he called, and the child of God responds by faith uh, that's given by God, leading to their justification. And eventually they will be glorified with God. But here's the driving factor, friends. Here's the driving factor of this passage is this. This is a God-centered passage. God is in entire control in this passage and in our lives as a whole. It exalts the sovereignty of God in every aspect, and then it hones in on the life of the believer. And friends, here's why this doctrine of, of God's sovereignty is so key. Without the sovereignty of God, and I want you to think with me, without the sovereignty of God, there is no purpose or direction in the universe. In this scenario, the universe is just carrying on according to fate or something else, and God is just along for the ride. He has no power or control to change anything, but he's just hoping for the best, and he's right with us, and we're just trekking along, uh, along some plan of fate. Guys, that's not the testimony of Scripture. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible gives us a, a, a real God who is in control and driving the events of the world and of history and even down to our very lives. God has ordained every event in the world. He has made promises over and over again through the Old Testament you read that he was faithful to fulfill. If you're a believer, then you've seen him demonstrate his power in your own life, and you know that's not of yourself, because we still sin. It's of his grace. And so, all of that to say, there is no reason not to believe in a sovereign God and a good God whom you can trust. To question God's authority and really his sovereignty, I want to submit, is to question the validity of the scriptures. And then things just begin to unravel from there. God is a good God. He is a sovereign God. You can trust him, and therefore you ought to look for a church that believes that same thing and that teaches that same thing. This point really segues nicely into number six. The sixth mark of a healthy church is this. It's a biblical understanding of the gospel and conversion. If we believe in a sovereign God, right? If we believe in a sovereign, in-control God, then this must impact our view of the gospel and conversion, Friends, I want to submit this to you. The gospel begins with a right understanding of who God is. It doesn't start with man. It doesn't start with our wants, our needs, but it starts with the character and nature of God. There must be a right view of God that he is the ruler of the universe, that he is holy and just, and there must also be the right understanding that man is sinful to his core. It's well said that we are sinners by birth, by nature, and by practice. We have sin nature that has been passed on to us from Adam. And further, we all sin by practice. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Ephesians 2.1 tells us that we're dead in our sins. All of mankind is hell bound. 
right? We must know this because of God's holiness and justice. And according to the prophet Nahum, he says, God is slow to anger and great in power. He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. He has to because he's just and holy. Further from Isaiah, we see that our sins have separated us from God. There's a separation now because God is holy. No unclean thing can dwell in his presence. Psalm 5.4. We have to understand the problem before we can understand the solution. And what's the solution? Guys, here's the incredible thing. God in his omnipotence, his omnipresence, his almightiness, his, his holiness, his justice, he is also loving and merciful and gracious. And you really see these attributes converge at the cross. You see his holiness and his hatred towards sin poured out on his son. His justice is upheld. And yet you see his mercy and his grace towards sinners presenting the sacrifice for our sin. What a marvelous display of the character of God at the cross and yet also the, the solution to our problem. Our sin has separated us, but now we're restored because of the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We're justified by faith in what God has done, the sovereign God, what he has done at the cross. We're justified by faith, not by our works. And it's only by putting our faith or our trust in God that we obtain an imputed righteousness. In other words, a, a righteousness that comes from outside of ourself, an alien righteousness that is placed onto us by faith in Christ. We need to recognize that we are naturally dead. There is no good thing within us. It's not as if some spark wells up, I'm going to believe today and that I generate this faith, I muster up this kind of faith myself. No, it is a work of God. It is a work of God's spirit regenerating a man, causing him to be born again and to be a new creation. John 3.3, 3, Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. Ezekiel 36.26, he says, moreover, I will give you a new heart. I will put my spirit within you. I will cause you to walk in my statutes. 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a what? He's a new creature. Behold, the old things have passed away and new things have come. God is the one who saves. He's the almighty one, not us. Therefore, a church's view of conversion must be a God-centered one. Now, if you're saying amen to this and praise the Lord, I am too. But you need to know this is not the gospel that's taught everywhere. Rather than emphasizing spiritual rebirth and conversion, many churches emphasize health, wealth, and prosperity. Rather than emphasizing the need for a new heart, some churches emphasize the need for baptism to be saved. Rather than emphasizing the need for faith and repentance, in which scriptures say can only come from God, some churches emphasize a prayer to be prayed, an altar call to be made, some sins to be forbade. I don't know. They, they emphasize some work for someone to do some act for you to do outwardly. Do you see the difference here, friends? Do you see the difference? So ask yourself now and ask of a church, what kind of gospel is being presented? Is it a man-centered one or is it a God-centered one? Is it focused on what God can do for man or is it focused on what God demands from sinful man? Is the church's understanding of conversion a decision, a prayer, an altar call, or is it genuine regeneration, new birth, and spiritual conversion? Ask those, those questions of yourself and of a church. 
The seventh mark that we'll look at this evening, uh, biblical or healthy marks of a church, is a biblical understanding of evangelism. And you can see, these just tie one right into the next, right? They, they, they build up. They lead into one another. We've established the sovereignty of God. We've established a biblical view of conversion and the gospel. And now the question is, how are we to do evangelism? Well, to start by defining evangelism, simply put, evangelism is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. To proclaim it. That is, it's a teaching, a preaching, a proclamation, proclamation of the message of God that leads to salvation with the aim, catch what I'm saying, it's doing this, proclaiming this message with the aim to persuade, convince, or convert. The Greek word behind the word evangelism is the word euangelion, which is gospel or good news. Uh, in its verb form, it means to proclaim or announce the good news, right? Romans 1.16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel or euangelion, for it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. And so the gospel is what's to be proclaimed in evangelism because it is the power of God. It is what God uses to save. Now, it's important to understand, though, when we're looking at who God is and biblical conversion, that there's many things that, that pose as evangelism that are not actually evangelism. For example, evangelism is not a personal testimony. Okay? Personal testimony may include the gospel, but in and of itself, a personal testimony is not evangelism. Evangelism is not social action or political action. In other words, the way to convert the world is not through vying uh, in political means. It's not through helping the community with your whole life. Great things, okay? These are good things, but they're not evangelism. Evangelism is not dropping a tract off in everyone's windshield, right? Those gospel tracts, putting it in everyone's windshield, putting it in every woman's purse who walks by, putting it in people's shoes at the bowling alley. No. <laughs> You can do those things, except for maybe the shoes. That's a little odd, but that's not evangelism, okay? It's not evangelism. Evangelism is not even apologetics. Apologetics is the defense of the faith, or it's really being equipped to answer people's objections or questions to the faith, things like the existence of God, the virgin birth, the resurrection of Jesus, a very helpful field of study, but evangelism is not apologetics, and apologetics is not evangelism. None of these are evangelism because of this. Evangelism is simply proclaiming the good news about Jesus. Now, in beginning to understand a biblical view of evangelism, a church, and therefore we, must define what successful evangelism is. What does it mean to be successful in evangelism? And I'm going to open with this statement. The end goal of evangelism is not necessarily to make converts. It's not necessarily to make converts. While we do have it our aim to make converts, one may be a successful, faithful evangelist and not have a single convert as a result of his or her evangelism. Unfortunately, too often the goal of evangelism becomes centered on, on getting people to make a decision, on getting people to, to pray a prayer or to, to do some act that shows that they've believed now raising their hand, getting baptized, whatever outward sign you're looking for, and in fact, the person's not even converted. And all you've done now, if that's your form of evangelism, is you've given them a false sense of assurance that they're saved when in fact they're not saved. 
Instead, though, true evangelism is presenting the good news freely and trusting God to bring conversion. And the goal of evangelism is faithfulness in sharing the truth to the glory of God. It's faithfulness in sharing the truth to the glory of God. Here's an example. Old Testament scripture, right? Perfect example. You've got the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah ministers and preaches the word of God for 40 years. How many converts did he have? Zero that we know of. Unrepentant, hardened to Israel. Wouldn't hear him. And then you've got Jonah, okay? And God calls Jonah to go, yeah, you guys know the story. He calls Jonah to go to a certain city and to proclaim judgment, actually, to proclaim uh, judgment from God. Jonah would not go, oh, those Gentiles, I'm not going. I'm running from God. He gets in a boat. He takes off in the ocean, running from God. You can't run from God. God causes a storm. The people on the boat know it's Jonah. Get him out of here. They throw him off the boat. The whale or the big fish swallows him. Three nights in the fish, finally Jonah breaks down and says, okay, I'll go. He goes into the city begrudgingly. He preaches a gospel of judgment and condemnation coming to them. And what happens? The whole city gets saved. It says 120,000 who didn't know their right from their left. You want to know what that means? Four to six-year-olds. 600,000 people is estimated in the city. The whole city turns and repents to God. Okay? What's the point of these two illustrations? It's this. Faithfulness is the key in evangelism. God does not judge us on our output. He doesn't judge us on our uh, production, but he judges us on our faithfulness. Paul said the same thing, right? 1 Corinthians 3, I planted, Apollos watered, but God causes the growth. So faithfulness is the key. And the takeaway from these examples is this. It's God who moves, right? God moves when he pleases. God is the one who's at work. We're just called to be faithful. Anyway, we try to force someone to new birth is doing what Ezekiel said and just trying to stitch dry bones together. Okay, we're just trying to stitch dead and dry bones together. But God instead must breathe life into a new person. Therefore, it's our job to proclaim the good news and trust him with the results. Now, here's the other side of this. Before leaving evangelism, here's the other side. At the same time, while believing that it is God who must move, we also must earnestly and deeply desire that people come to know Christ from, I mean, the deepest part of our being. And it's biblical. We ought to yearn for people to know Christ in fact, I was helped by Mark Dever here uh, in his desire to state three things when communicating for someone to make a decision to follow Christ. He said this, number one, the decision is costly. In other words, it must be considered carefully. It is costly. It's costly to follow Jesus. You might die. Okay, but that leads to number two, and he says the decision is urgent. In other words, the decision must be made. And then thirdly, he wants to communicate to someone, it's costly, it's urgent. Thirdly, it is so worth it. It is so worth it. This decision should be made. And here's the thing, friends, too often we leave out step number one. We take away the costly aspect of it and we try to make it like a birthday cake and present the gospel to them so that they'll accept it at whatever. No, we need to present the gospel as it is to people but we should also be earnestly desiring that they would make this decision, that they would choose to follow Christ. Just one last point with regard to evangelism before we move on. 
Here's another thing to keep in mind. God uses evangelism both to convert people and to condemn people. Okay? Uh, In other words, sadly, people who have been witnessed to time and time again are essentially going to have zero excuses when they stand before God. Zero. And that's not necessarily a motivating factor, but really the, the boiling point comes down to this. While we plead and pray for people, the ultimate goal of evangelism is faithfulness, and ultimately we do it for the glory of God. God uses our evangelism in ways we don't even know. He uses our talking about the gospel in ways that we can't even fathom. So we need to be at a church that believes this about evangelism. Number eight, if you're moving along on the outline, the eighth mark of a healthy church is a proper administration of the ordinances. In entering this eighth mark, we again must hold our view of true biblical conversion at the forefront. And we now must consider how do the ordinances tie in with this? Okay, we've established true conversion. How do the ordinances fit? Now, just to clarify one thing, an ordinance is not a sacrament, okay? A sacrament is generally thought of as a means of experiencing God's grace. In a lot of religions, it's adding God's grace to you, okay? An ordinance is simply just a command. It's just a a command to follow. It's a mandate. It's an authoritative order. And from a scriptural standpoint, there are only two ordinances that the church is to do on a regular basis. And these two ordinances are baptism and communion, Now, we're going to dig into these again in a few weeks, so I'm just going to survey it. But I want to present to you an idea I've been thinking about, and I think it's biblical. Uh, (laughs) I hope it's biblical. (laughs) If the end all is the glory of God, the glory of God is the chief end of man, to glorify the Lord. We know that. And the gospel is one demonstration of God's glory in his redemption of mankind. I don't believe his glory is limited to the gospel. It's displayed through the gospel, but that's one avenue of the glory of God. And then you've got these two ordinances that are both representations, physical representations of the gospel. Really, the the purpose of the ordinances are to glorify God, to bring glory to God and to remember the gospel. Let's look at these separately for a moment and then we'll come back to this. First, you've got baptism. Okay, again, I'm going to support this in a few weeks. Baptism is for believers only. It's not for infants. It's not for any specific age demographic, but it's for those who have genuinely been born from above. Okay, the proper mode of baptism is immersion into water. Again, we'll look at these claims in a few weeks. From Romans, flip to your left to Acts chapter uh, 8. I want you to see this in your own Bibles. We'll just look at one example of baptism. Acts chapter 8, here's what's going on. You've got uh, the Ethiopian. He's wondering what is going on in Isaiah 53. The Lord supernaturally calls Philip to go minister to him. Let's pick up the story in Acts chapter 8, verse 30. It says, Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of scripture which he was reading was this. It says he was led up, he was led as a sheep to slaughter and as a lamb before its shears is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. The eunuch answered Philip and said, please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of someone else? 
Then Philip opened his mouth and began, beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. As they went along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop. They both went down into water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. Now, this is really an incredible story, and we could dig into this for a long time, but the point I want to take from it is that this man believed, and then he was baptized. Did you catch the condition from verse 37? What was the condition for baptism? It was belief, right? He didn't say, oh, you got to be a baby to be baptized. He didn't say, oh, yeah, you want to be saved? Let's go get baptized. Okay, he didn't say either of those. What did he say? He said, if you believe from your heart, then you can be baptized. The condition was belief from the heart. And this aligns elsewhere in scripture when we're taught that no work can save us, no outward act but faith alone. That's why we looked at the gospel and true conversion first. Naturally, though, you may ask, well, then why is there baptism? Why baptism at all? If salvation's by faith and baptism plays no role in that, then why did the Ethiopian get baptized and why are we supposed to be baptized? Well, I believe the purpose is twofold. And these are just practical points, not necessarily biblical, but the first is this. It's a public declaration of faith. It's a public declaration of faith in Jesus. Uh, <clears throat> this is his prescribed model so that people aren't claiming it and hiding, right? They're not... a uh, uh, professing Christian, but outwardly they deny him. True faith in Jesus impacts every part of our lives, right? We know this. So baptism is God's way of making that public. But secondly, it's corporate identification. In other words, it's a way of identifying with the local body of believers. They now know where this individual stands so that at least they know how to relate to them. Otherwise, it's like, okay, is this a believer? Is this an unbeliever? you at least know that someone is professing to be a believer. And that's why, you know, a lot of churches will do testimonies accompanying a baptism. They profess to be a believer. Therefore, I can relate to them in that manner. Now, the second ordinance given by our Lord is the regular practice of communion. And I wish we had time to break down John 6 and see where this terrible doctrine of transubstantiation came from. It's a terrible hermeneutic of John 6. We'll do that next time. But for now, flip to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Flip to your right to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Look at verse 23. Paul writing, he says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he betray was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Paul in this passage is referring back to Jesus' last supper with the disciples in Matthew 26. And the point here is that in 1 Corinthians and quoting back to Jesus in Matthew 26, they were to do this in remembrance of Jesus. They were to take the bread and take the cup in remembrance of Jesus. He said it two times so that we don't get it wrong. And so communion is a way to remember what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. Now to bring us back to the original consideration with these two ordinances, I believe the Lord's intent in communion and baptism is to remember the gospel and then in turn to glorify God. 
right? And how many of you, have you been in a baptism and you are reminded of the freshness and the, oh, the sweetness of the gospel the first time it saved you? As you're listening to these people's testimonies, you think of the gospel and you think, wow, glory be to God. As you're taking communion, hopefully you have a moment of reflection where you think about the cross. You think about God's wrath on his own son for me? What? Oh, glory be to God. That's what I'm going to present is perhaps the motive and the reason for these ordinances. The gospel has to be at the center of a church. And so as a tangible, physical way to remember and to see that, there's baptism and communion. Well, lastly, looking at point number nine, uh, a healthy church needs to have a concern for discipleship and growth. Peter ends his last letter of 2 Peter with these words. He says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Titus 2, we see older women are to teach the younger women how to love their husbands, love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, not enslaved to much wine, teachers of what is good. The older women were essentially to disciple the younger women. 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul tells Timothy, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Okay? And this is really the go-to verse for discipleship, isn't it? How many generations do we have going on here? We have four generations of discipleship. Listen again. He says, the things which you have heard from me Paul, in the presence of many witnesses, speaking to Timothy, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Four generations in one verse of discipleship. Do you think Paul's heart was for discipleship? That's why in Colossians 1.28, Paul says, we proclaim him admonishing every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. And the word complete just means mature or perfect or full grown. Paul wanted believers to be mature in the church. And so he says in Colossians 1.28 that he was admonishing every man in order to bring this about. Let me just ask you here, is this your desire? Okay. Do you have a desire to see others come to maturity in Christ? Do you have a desire to see yourself come to maturity in Christ? Or perhaps you're like those in Hebrews 5 who, by this time, you ought to be teachers, but you still have need for someone to teach you the elementary and, and, and basic principles of God. Those who have come to need milk and not the solid food of the word. Is this you, friends? Are you still on the milk or have you moved on to the maturity of the solid food of God's word? Guys, a healthy church must have a strong conviction and desire to see its members built up in Christ. This is not optional. Jesus didn't leave any option, right? We all know the Great Commission, Matthew 28. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But what comes next? Okay, do you know what comes next after that? It says, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. The Great Commission cannot just be boiled down to an itinerant preacher proclaiming the gospel then leaving but biblical evangelism always must lead to biblical discipleship. And as we've seen from these passages, it's, it must include in the ongoing process of teaching people how to walk with the Lord, teaching people how to obey, how to serve. People, when they get born again, they need to be retrained how to think. We need to have a new mind, 
right? Our minds are still sinful and fleshly. Romans 12, 2, we have to be transformed by the renewing of, your, of our minds. And so discipleship is coming alongside of someone and helping them to grow in their walk with the Lord. As we wind down this point, let's focus our view on, let's focus our attention on this ninth mark for a moment. And I just want to ask again, are you of this mindset? This can be the biggest takeaway if you'll listen for a moment. Okay? Are you of this mindset? Are you bought into discipleship? Are you looking to pour yourself into others around you to invest and to encourage and to build up people, to train the younger in the faith to help bring them to maturity? Is that your mindset? It was Jesus' mindset. He discipled his disciples, right? Are you involved in this as well? And further, are you being invested into? Is someone pouring into your life? Are you seeking ways in which you can grow and become more mature? Have you ever asked someone to point out weaknesses in your life? I just had a young man ask me that this week. Hey, where, you know, where am I sinning? Where are my weaknesses? Have you done that? We've seen from Scripture that discipleship and growth is mandatory, so are you doing it? Are you in the game? Are you involved in the game? Or are you just on the sideline watching everyone else minister? Consequently, then, are you at a church that emphasizes discipleship? Listen, gang, you need to be at a church that cares about this or you and your peers are going to flounder. You're going to sink. And so just in closing this evening out, I want to encourage you to run back through these and examine your own views. Examine yourself. How do your views line up? Can the text hold them? Do they fit with Scripture? Can your views stand the test of the Bible? And then you've got to ask these questions of your church. Is your church marked by these five, and going back to last week, these nine marks of a healthy church? Does your church line up with the biblical standard of God's intent for all that a church is to be? If not, then I would say first, try to be part of the solution, right? And if you recognize that the leadership is bent on a way that doesn't line up, then perhaps you need to look for a new church. Friends, do you see the continuity, though? And here's kind of the closing point to wrap up these two messages. Do you see the continuity between all these points? Okay, they just flow right into one another. Baptism and membership go hand in hand with church restoration. In other words, if you don't know who's claiming to be a believer, then how do you know whether or not to go to them as a sinning believer or as an unbeliever? Likewise, a high view of God directly impacts how we view conversion and how we share the gospel. These points tie together. Here's why. Because they reflect the mind of God and his intent for the church. And I'll tell you, my personal takeaway from this study is to praise God for having given us all that we need right here in the Bible. We don't need to look to Apple or Forbes or any world's way of operating to know how to run the church. God's word is sufficient for all areas of the Christian life. And you better believe that includes how to run the church and how the church is to function. Let's bow as we pray together. Lord, would you do a work, God? Humble our hearts, Lord, to examine ourselves, to test our own doctrine, to test our own beliefs, and Lord, to see if we line up if the text can hold it. Lord, I don't want to believe anything that's not true. 
And I pray this for this group as well. Lord, like I said before, my heart's desire is that we as a group, we as a people, Lord, would come to maturity in Christ. Lord, that we may be presented perfect, lacking nothing. Lord, I pray for these individuals that they would be an active and serving member in their church, wherever that is. Lord, that you would use them not only in their college years, but beyond. God, as they go into life, into their 30s and 40s, that these young men and women would be elders and deacons and servants behind the scenes, running the soundboard and uh, vacuuming floors and doing whatever needs to be done for the church of God. Lord, and even more so, would they be involved in discipleship and evangelism? God, we are called to make disciples. I pray that you would grip this room to be involved in the game and not just on the sideline watching. Lord, as we've looked at your church and the marks of a healthy church, Father, we are in awe that you, you are faithful to give us what we need. Lord, you lay these things out in your word so clearly that there's no question. It's just a matter of our obedience and a church's obedience. So, Lord, make us obedient. Make us faithful servants who follow you day in and day out until you bring us home. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.